0: Now, this month, we're re examining the Lord's Prayer from a new and different perspective, courtesy of a book Nancy Merrill gave to me called The Source of Miracles Seven Steps to Transforming Your Life Through the Lord's Prayer by her friend Kathleen McGowan. She bases these steps on the rose with six petals found at the center of the labyrinth at Chartres Cathedral in France. Each petal corresponds to a different line of the lord's prayer one at a time which she says if we practice with the full awareness of what that really means we can create miracles for our own lives for those we love for those we encounter as we go about the business of living in this world and for our entire world That full awareness part is the key though, and all this month we're seeking to understand it so we can unlock a life experience more wonderful than we ever could have imagined. And the six petals from left to right are faith, surrender, service, abundance, forgiveness, and overcoming obstacles. And the seventh step lies at the center of the rose, and that is love. As love is at the center of our being, it is also at the center of all good. Love is the foundation for divine law and it flows through God's every action. And so far we've covered five petals, right? We did faith and surrender, service and abundance. Last week we looked at forgiveness. This week we look at overcoming obstacles. And I borrowed the title from uh, for this sermon, from a book by Ryan Holiday. It's called The Obstacle is the Way, Um, and it's based on the principles laid out by Roman emperor and Cleopatra's love, Marcus Aurelius. No, it was Mark Antony. I'm looking at the teachers. It was Mark Antony. I got the M and the A completely confused. Wow. But he said this cool thing. He was one of the the founders of the Stoic movement, or Stoicism. Um, And I named this sermon thus um, because it is from Marcus Aurelius that one of my all-time favorite quotes comes. Whenever I'm faced with a trying time, a challenge, or an obstacle, I try to remember this that he would say, Ah, you are the very thing I was looking for. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have that phrase at the ready every time there was a stone in your path? Every time life had you squirming in your seat or sweating bullets? This mess is exactly what I need. I don't know why, but I know it's there to help me. It sounds strange, but when you can really get it, really, really get it, the way you move through the world and the joy you feel as you do it, shifts into true fulfillment on the other side of doubt is faith on the other side of pain lies strength on the other side of fear is love and we want to get to that center of that rose right that love next week don't we so the obstacle really is the way, and this corresponds to the line of the Lord's Prayer, and do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Source of Miracles on pages 142 and 143, Kathleen McGowan writes, to reap the power of these final words of the Lord's Prayer, we must agree on the definition of three terms, temptation, sin, and evil. We'll start with evil for two reasons. First, because the power of evil can feel overwhelming, and you must understand that it is not. And second, because defining evil clears the way to understanding temptation and sin. So what is evil? I will not embark on a lengthy theological analysis of all the possible interpretations here. Instead, I'm going to state um, a definition that was given to Kathleen McGowan um, when she was studying the medieval prayer process from Chartres. A very simple yet powerful definition. That which keeps you from accomplishing and fulfilling your divine promise is evil evil is not an exterior force or a horn devil that will tempt you off your path it is the failing of your own nature within the larger framework of evil lies temptation temptation is the human weakness that can lead us into sin so what then is sin you ask try this on sin is a self-imposed limitation that causes us to stray from our path of service and from our remembering that we are with god through love and forgiveness and we're going to look closely at i know you're not expecting this the seven deadly sins i know that is not what you expected to hear in a new thought church Um, But stick with me here, this is good. It is significant to note that when the list we now know as the seven deadly sins first appeared in the Christian writings of the 4th century, they were referred to as, and I quote, patterns of evil thought. Something got lost in the translation throughout the centuries, didn't it? The list was originally created as a constructive tool To help people identify their spiritual weaknesses so that they would have guidelines to follow on the path to leading a blessed life with God. And these patterns, which will stick to calling evil thought throughout, um, those patterns matter immensely. As they're exactly those thoughts which we need to grow past or be delivered from in order to stay in harmony with our highest and most divine nature. And they are the temptations we must resist if we are to attract everything we desire into our lives and keep it there. They are the manner in which humans inflict suffering on themselves. Think about that. These thoughts, these evils are aimed at ourselves and our fellow humans on the earth. They are emotions that cause us to behave in ways that do not serve our higher purpose and that keep us from enlightenment. Most importantly, they are patterns of thought which stand in direct opposition to love. They are ego, anger, envy, complacency, greed, indulgence, and lust. So, ego. Sometimes known as pride or hubris, ego is contained within the center of all the other so-called sins. And that's why it's at the top of the list. Um, What is ego? Not in the clinical Freudian way of id, ego, super ego. The kind of ego we're talking about is when we attempt to take the wheel and tell God we're going to drive the bus. Notice I said attempt. God's always driving. We just tend to muck it up for ourselves while God keeps steering right on. This ego is when we think it's all about us all the time, and here's where it really hits. Thinking that it's all about us all the time, and then acting in accordance with it. The farther you follow a path that's all about you, the farther you stray from your life's goals. Remember that divine contract we talked about the first week? The faster we get out of our way, the faster we can experience divine fulfillment. And if you've been practicing this method all month, your efforts in the first three petals, faith, surrender and service, they will ensure that you're operating from a place of selflessness rather than ego. So we'll move on to anger or ire. This can be one of the most common and toughest to conquer, but anger is our nemesis and we have to work at it consciously and often. There are a lot of things thrust before our eager eyes to get angry about, right? Politics and worldwide exploitation and violence and lawlessness and injustice and cruelty of all shapes and sizes, right? And I know that can feel overwhelming, perhaps so overwhelming that one itty-bitty little teeny-tiny social infraction can push us right over the edge sometimes, can it? A rude person in line, less than wonderful service at a restaurant or store, disrespectful kids or spouses or peers, LA traffic, yeah, that one's tough definitely tough but what if i told you that it could be shifted into something which transforms it into service from pedal two on page 147 she says anger is a powerful emotion and when anger is channeled properly it can be an irresistible force used to positive effect think of people like reverend dr martin luther king jr Gandhi, Mother Saint, Teresa, Nelson Mandela, Teach Not Han, did they inspire huge lasting change? Yes, definitely. Did they do it with anger and bluster and bullying? No, not at all. But were they angry? Did their missions begin out of anger then become profoundly peaceful examples of social justice. Absolutely. You don't move mountains towards social equality without some fire behind your movement. You channel that fire into purpose, which will move us into envy. On page 148, McGowan says envy is potentially the most toxic of sins. Envy corrodes the soul and rusts the heart, turning love and joy into bitterness. Envy is jealousy on steroids. It is the desire to see someone else fail. It is wishing ill on your fellow man because they have something you want. Or I'll add, they have something you think they don't deserve. When we suffer from envy, we resent that another has been given something we wish we had. Perhaps we feel like someone was given something that was rightfully ours. That all sounds pretty scary, right? And we can see how it might be easy to fall into some of those thoughts, right? I call it keeping score. You're keeping track of what everyone else has in comparison to what you've got. And you notice when something's just not fair, right? And you let some of your less attractive traits and emotions take the lead when that happens, right? But consider this from the lesson on abundance that we talked about the second week. This was on page 105. She says, God wants you to have what you desire. He wants your greatest joy and abundance to come to you easily and without suffering. As your father, he will always provide exactly what you need and what you ask for when you fulfill your spiritual promises to keep your service commitments. Lack is not your natural state. You feel it when you are spiritually unbalanced. So, when someone has the thing, we think should have been ours. When someone succeeds, when we'd rather see them fail, when someone is doing or getting something which earns them the attention that we want, we must ask ourselves, where am I spiritually unbalanced? Envy can also be the byproduct of judgment. She says on page 150, you may think that other people's success is unfair that they don't deserve it based on what you've observed of their behavior. But that is for God alone to judge. He knows their pasts, and he knows their intentions, which is vital information that you do not have. So rather than expending so much energy on what others have and why you feel they don't deserve it, which, I'll add, brings into play that other biggie, ego. That's active there. You can change your life by taking that same energy and refocusing it on what you can be doing to make your own life better. God is impartial to all. We all have the very same access to the divine and the law by which it operates. If we didn't get something we wanted, There's a reason, right? Moving into complacency, sometimes listed as sloth. In the Divine Comedy, Dante defines sloth as the failure to fulfill the primary commandment, which is to love God with all one's heart, all one's mind, and all one's soul. If you truly love God, with all your heart, mind, and soul. Are you going to find the nearest bushel to hide under? Or are you going to let your light shine? Are you going to love God by staying couch-locked in the dark with a remote control in your hand, diving into shadows whenever someone knocks on the door? Or is that just me? <laughs> someone knocks on the door, and like, shh. But I recognize it. See, you're not alone in learning through these talks. McGowan says on page 153, sloth, laziness, indifference, inertia, whatever word you choose, they all represent a lack of faith and a subsequent inability to show love and surrender to God. When we are apathetic about the world around us, we are not caring about God's plan, nor are we honoring our promise to create heaven on earth. We're not using our talents in any active way to further our lives, and certainly not in the service-oriented way that God wishes for us. It has been my observation that those who show the highest degree of apathy and complacency get hit with the hardest lessons. They're the lessons we signed up for. When we understand why we're here and what's expected of us, which we covered in our talks the first three weeks of the month, and we show compassion and love toward one another, our lives are harmonious and beautiful. But, and this is really important to remember, generosity is the antidote to complacency. There was A beautiful story on a news channel several years ago that really brings this idea home. A woman in Texas had fallen to her knees on the floor of a Dallas auction house, crying almost uncontrollably. Her name was Tracy, and her home was in foreclosure and about to be auctioned. She'd come to the auction because she was still in disbelief that her family was about to lose everything they had. She thought perhaps the auction would give her the closure she needed so she could let it go and move past it. And as Tracy cried, a woman she'd never met, Marilyn, was walking through the auction house in search of her son, who was there to buy a foreclosed property. Marilyn stopped when she saw Tracy, unable to walk past another human being in such pain. And she asked her why she was so distraught, and Tracy told her. And when Tracy's house came up for auction, Marilyn bid on it. She'd never seen the house. She had no idea how much it was worth, but she knew it meant everything to the woman sobbing on that floor, and she bid on it until she won. Marilyn gave Tracy, a perfect stranger, her house back. She spent $30,000 of her own money to save the home of a family she did not know. And when the reporter asked why she did it, Marilyn seemed surprised by the question. It made her pause for a second. Then came her reply, wouldn't everybody? She helped Tracy because she could. Plain and simple. And because... Her natural default setting is one of kindness and compassion. Marilyn believed that literally everyone with the capacity to do the same would do the same. Marilyn's reality is the reality God wants for the world that we will all help each other in such a way because it is what we are here to do. It's what God wants for all of us. Remember those words of Mother Teresa's from our talk the second week. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on this world. Now we're on to greed, sometimes listed as avarice. And this is a quick one. We're all familiar with greed, right? Greed is the opposite of generosity, but it's more than simply not sharing your wealth and abundance with others. It implies a willingness to go to great and less than virtuous lengths to hold on to our stuff whether that stuff is in physical form, like property or money, or in the sharing of ourselves, our time, our skills. We lie, avoid, hide, perhaps even steal to get and keep our stuff. And not just in our everyday personal lives, but in matters of business, this is just as big a deal. How often have we heard of huge layoffs while the bigwig's salaries and benefits aren't reduced even a little. That's just business, we often hear, right? It's nothing personal. McGowan says on page 163 what would happen if we stopped compartmentalizing our relationships, if we stopped hiding behind definitions that we have invented to excuse our unspiritual behavior on a daily basis? What if we truly treated everyone the way that we wish to be treated all the time, regardless of the circumstances? The world as we know it could transform with that singular change in our way of doing. Now into indulgence, sometimes listed as gluttony. Now, what do most of us call into mind when we think of the word gluttony? Chocolate. Perfect. We call to mind images of overconsumption, of food or drink or other substances, right? But in modern terms, indulgence is really about excess. I'm not knocking enjoying the finer things in life. Abundance is meant to be experienced and shared with joy. But when does that start to look like gluttony, like excess? Let me pose this story from page 166, and I paraphrased it here. She says, I recently read an article in a women's magazine about a British pop star. In it, she was showcasing her collection of Hermes handbags, of which she owned over a hundred. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Hermes bags, which boast a starting price of about $5,000, I looked. Up into the six figures range, I can confidently state that her hundred handbags are worth potentially plural millions of dollars. Is that excess? Is that indulgence? Does she use them all? What she says is, while you may want to scream, yes, of course it is, allow me to stop you. Here is the tricky part. It's not for us to judge her. Because when we do that, we impose man-made standards on spiritual issues. Who then becomes the judge of what is too much? Who decides how many handbags one pop star can or cannot have? Who decides lavish? Who draws the line? The answer is that this issue, as all others, is between each individual and God. We must all search our own conscience to make such a determination within the context of our own lives and behavior. On page uh, 168, she offers an affirmation that helps put this into context. Wealth enables freedom and happiness. I am committed to using my forthcoming wealth with consciousness to create a beautiful life for myself and others. And there it is. Others. Yes, you can have a 100 Hermes bags and not be a glutton if you are also dedicating an equal part of your life working toward the good of others. The balance of that equation is only between you and God. And last, we're looking at lust. We all know the term. and. To be honest, I tried my darnedest to avoid going into it. I even entertained the thought that I could just leave it off and no one would notice. Um, and I might have maybe gotten away with it, but I owe it to you to deliver all the goods, even when I don't want to. It's not the word or its literal definition that I struggle with. It's what it means in real life. All of those harsh, jarring triggering words and scenarios that come into mind when you think of lust when i was writing this i kept picturing um like the hollywood style preacher who's screaming about heathens and sinful lust with sweat pouring down their face and spit flying and it freaked me out lust is not love lust is objectifying another person for our own selfish wants it is not tender not necessarily kind remember that old ego jerk from the top of the list yeah ego's in charge of this one too big time a lot of people get hurt because of lust and a lot of people perpetuate those injuries because of lust talking about it in and of itself doesn't feel good And i wager some of you are feeling a little uncomfortable hearing about it and watching me squirm up here which is why i'm taking it in another direction lust is a thing we don't have to experience we must remember the truth that regardless of parentage we are born of love by love and in the image of love. We're here on purpose and for a purpose. When we recognize that everyone, without exception, is made of love, we realize that love is all there is. That knowledge wipes out all of the petty illusions of the material world. We've done the work on all six petals, and we're now ready to fully explore Life free from temptation and limitation, wings spread wide and wonderment on the horizon. Our Father in heaven, which is both within and without us, your name is holy and we see only the good with which you have surrounded us, for we know that good is all there is. May your kingdom come. May heaven come to earth through our hands and hearts as we do only that which is your will. As in heaven, so upon earth. To create your heaven on earth, we commit ourselves to bringing forth only more joy, peace, and harmony, and happiness in our every thought, word, and deed, inspiring others to do the same give us today our sufficient bread as you have each and every day of our lives we know that your very nature is giving and so it is with gratitude that we serve as your instruments knowing that even as you guide us you are fulfilling our needs and wants with limitless abundance and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors for we know that it is All in your hands debts and debtors all serve a role in your divine plan and we are grateful to be your instruments within that plan recognizing the role you've given us we release any burden of guilt we've carried realizing that it is you who have guided us there and recognizing the role you've given others we release them from our perception of debt, for we know that you have guided them as well. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for we now understand that the key to your heaven resides in the thoughts of our mind and the love in our heart. And we allow only that knowledge which supports your goodness to guide us throughout all the days of our lives. And we say, so let it be. And so it is. Amen.